0: In poker, the Joker card is used as a wild card to make the game unpredictable. Knowing that there are four suits, and therefore four of each number and face of the different suits, helps players in knowing what possible combinations of cards other players might have in their hands. But with a Joker, there could be five kings, there could be five aces. You're always confident and you know the rules, until the Joker comes up. Ba, ba, ba. Another warning, the following is an in-depth analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. The Dark Knight is considered by many to be the best superhero film ever made, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Heath Ledger's Oscar-winning performance of the Joker, the dark themes of anarchy and terrorism we'd rarely seen in a superhero film before, the fact that it plays as a sophisticated, complex crime drama, and that while it's based on a superhero comic, it isn't limited by the expectations of that genre and appeals to a wider demographic than just comic book and action movie fans. A lot of why it's so well received by so many people seems to be because, in a way, It doesn't feel like a superhero movie at all. Though that, of course, isn't wholly true, and I'll delve into that idea at length in a moment. But despite the record-breaking box office and the extraordinary impact the film had on the movie industry, there are naturally people who think the Dark Knight is overrated. For some, the argument is the same as why some people didn't care for Batman Begins. It wasn't their Batman. But this time, there's the added complaint of, that's not my Joker. It goes without saying that Batman didn't need the Dark Knight to remain one of the most popular American characters in history, and with his long and rich history, a lot of his fans know what they want him to be and what they want his rogues to be. To many, if the Joker isn't, to the T, the same character as Mark Hamill's portrayal in Batman the Animated Series, he's not the same character. For these fans, they don't want a reinvention, they want what they feel they didn't get from Jack Nicholson's Joker in 1989, the demented, unpredictable, yet hilarious Joker, a Joker who was, at the core, twisted, but still a lot of fun to watch. And I'm sure some of those fans were disappointed to, as they see it, watch a Joker who's relegated to a terrorist. The most resounding complaint, as far as I can tell, is that the political allegory and social commentary is too heavy-handed to enjoy The Dark Knight as a Batman movie. That, sure, you'll want something that's more than just the two-dimensional good guy and the two-dimensional bad guy hitting each other until the good guy inevitably wins, as Tim Burton's Batman is so often criticized up now, but the gripe against The Dark Knight is that it spends so much time talking about things, the characters get lost in a thick cloud of philosophical debate. In other words, and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouths, but for at least some of the people who don't care for it, the argument seems to be that it isn't enough of a superhero movie. Now someone once said that The Dark Knight is like eating a really big, amazing steak and wanting more even though you're full. Of course this was someone who really really likes The Dark Knight. I think The Dark Knight is like the restaurant where the really big, amazing steak was served. If a new restaurant opens and people tell you for weeks on end you've gotta go there and you've gotta try this incredible steak, by the time you finally give in to the hype and try it out, chances are your perceptions will have been tainted and the steak won't taste nearly as good as it may have had you eaten it the day the restaurant opened. Of course, you can't fault your friends, they just want you to have the same incredible experience they had. But the very fact that they told you ad nauseum how incredible their experience was is precisely why you can't possibly experience it the same way. Because you're expecting it. Because now that it's been talked up so much, you're going to demand more from it than it can possibly deliver you want perfection. Now that's perhaps not the best analogy just because The Dark Knight was hyped up by Hollywood and its incredibly well-executed viral marketing and traditional ad campaigns well before anyone saw it. The popular YouTube web series I'm a Marvel and I'm a DC did a video before the movie was released making fun of the anticipation depicting the movie's opening as if it were the second coming of Christ. But my point is, it's natural to be skeptical of anything so massively hyped and that's gonna affect how you experience it. But I've never been the sort of person to jump to hating something just because it was popular, and I also try not to let the popularity overwhelm my common sense. No matter how the masses rally behind something or completely blackball it, I'm going to allow myself to love it or hate it based on the experience I had with it, and hopefully I didn't wait until all my friends shared their experiences first. With something like this, it's impossible to be completely objective. It's Batman. It's a sequel to a movie I really love, but to the best of my ability, I try to let it stand on its own, and to judge it on its own terms. And I have the same I liked it a great deal more the second time I saw it than the first because it's so dense with material, there's so much stuff going on, I was overwhelmed on the first viewing. I lost myself in the performances so much that I completely missed a lot of what the story was doing until I saw it again. As I try to say frequently, this is my view of the film, and you should feel free to have your own. I have to be honest, I've been dreading doing this review. It's been my most requested and, in some cases, most demanded review and I know I can't possibly make everybody happy. Some of you are expecting me to say, The Dark Knight is the greatest superhero movie ever made, and others of you are expecting me to call it the most overrated. As you can probably guess by now, I'm not going to make either of those statements. And so rather than trying to guess what people want me to talk about, I'm going to just speak my mind. I'm going to do my best to give you my honest take on the Dark Knight. Again, I don't expect anybody to agree with me, but I do encourage people to judge a piece on its own terms for what it is rather than what you'd like it to be. Like I said in my review of Batman Begins, I think a well-made movie is still a well-made movie even if it's not what you like. If it's not your bag, I completely understand. And luckily it won't be long after this trilogy is wrapped up before you'll have the chance to try out a brand new kind of Batman bag. But for me, The Dark Knight is an enjoyable and thought-provoking but intense and tragic film, a delicate balancing act between exploring an idea and making an entertaining commercial movie. I've always said the best superhero films are those that are something else first and a superhero movie second. The Dark Knight is, at its core, an intricate crime drama. The city versus the mob, the police trying to run all of organized crime into the ground, the mob limping along on its last leg after Batman has done so much to clean up the city's streets. I don't think there's a more involved plot in a superhero movie than The Dark Knight. It's an extremely dense film with the various factions of the mob trying to stay afloat. The crooked tycoon out of Hong Kong helping to keep the Gotham mob's cash flow going Harvey Dent and Jim Gordon's plan to track the mob's money with marked bills and cut off that cash flow. The politics of jurisdiction. They can't go after Lau while he's back in Hong Kong, but Batman can. Then, once Batman turns him over to the Gotham police, there's the law lingo about a RICO case, where if you can charge one offender for a crime, you can charge all of them. And that's how Harvey put several hundred gangsters behind bars in one day, and that leads to the dangers of Gordon and the mayor putting all their eggs in one basket, trusting Dent to hold the city together while every criminal criminal that's left will be coming after him. When the movie was over, I felt like I'd gotten a crash course in criminal justice and big city politics. I never thought I'd go to a Batman movie and learn things like what a RICO case is. Jonathan and Christopher Nolan really did their homework to make a legitimate modern crime thriller, and not just leave the details in the background to focus on the action. I don't think those details overshadow the humanity of the story. I think it's important that we see, specifically, how hard this triad — Batman, Dent, and Gordon — all work to bring down the criminal underworld. How much it means to each of them this plan succeeds, because going through all of this with them, we can better experience the pain each of them goes through when the Joker steps in and they fail to fully stand up to that corruption. The Dark Knight and Iron Man both set the stage for a new breed of superhero movie. Films that were about a person putting on a costume and trying to save the world, but films that were also more sophisticated and about something more meaningful and culturally relevant than simply inspiring people to be proactive, to stand up for what they believe in, to help people. Those are of course excellent things for a film to inspire us to do, but if every single superhero movie told us the same thing, there'd be no reason to keep making these things. That message becomes an easy formula rather than something we can really get anything out of. The Dark Knight thrilled a lot of of us because it felt fresh. It was unpredictable. It doesn't neatly fit into the superhero movie formula we're used to. Hackett it doesn't really fit neatly into the basic three-act formula, and yet it's surprisingly cohesive and confident about what it wants to be. Three times in the film we're told Batman is not a hero. When Bruce allows Harvey to turn himself in as Batman after the Joker has already killed several people trying to force Batman to reveal his true identity, Alfred tells Rachel that Bruce is making a sacrifice. He's not being the hero. He's being something more. After Rachel is killed and Harvey loses half his face in an explosion, Bruce implies that he's not really a hero when he says, Gotham needs its true hero, and I let that murdering psychopath blow him half to hell. Finally, at the end of the movie, after Batman decides to take the fall for everyone Harvey killed to preserve Harvey's reputation, Gordon explains to his son Jimmy why the police have to chase him. He's not a hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, the Dark Knight. Now, personally, I thought that was a little bit too spelled out, but the point is, Batman's whole character arc is about learning what Batman's limits are. That morally, there are lines he can't cross, but as a symbol, he has to allow himself to be whatever Gotham needs him to be so it can survive, whether that's symbolically a hero or a villain. And he faces the consequences of trying to be a hero. He's inspired a lot of good, but the worst evil he's had to contend with, a man he doesn't even understand because he doesn't play by the same rules as the other villains he fought, was also inspired by. If Batman didn't exist, none of the horrible things that happen in this movie the people that Joker kills, Harvey Dent's tragic fall from grace, Rachel's death, none of it would have happened. And most importantly, Batman doesn't really win in the end. The Joker goes to jail and Harvey is stopped before he can kill anyone else, but again, in order to preserve whatever progress Dent made in giving the people of Gotham hope, he has to become the villain, to make everyone think he's a murderer. The Joker ultimately doesn't win, but Batman doesn't either. So the superhero movie that changed all the rules that helped to really jazz people about the genre again is telling us that its hero isn't really the hero. Is Batman being noble by not being the hero, as Alfred says, or is all of this his fault for getting involved in a situation he didn't fully understand back in Batman Begins? His fault for inspiring evil as well as good, even if it was unintentional. Was he never a hero in the first place and he's just cleaning up his own mess at the end? Now let me be clear, I'm not saying The Dark Knight isn't a superhero film, but I do think it's realistically questioning the idea of being a superhero and the broader implications of that. Batman Begins was about the superhero coming-of-age story, about a man facing his fears, using his fears, and developing into an ideal he would use to inspire others and change the state of things in his city. The Dark Knight is about how society is affected by that ideal. It's about how complicated real life is. You can't just put on a costume, be the good guy, punch out the bad guy, and call it a day. For every action there are consequences, and for every good thing that comes out of your well-intentioned actions there may be unintended consequences. The question you have to ask yourself is, and the question the Dark Knight asks numerous times, is whether or not it's worth it. Without Batman, the city would be as crime-ridden as it was in Begin. still run by Carmine Falcone, and Harvey Dent may have never even run for DA. He certainly wouldn't have been able to get as much done. But Batman also, as Alfred reminds Bruce, pushed the criminal underworld to the point of desperation, and so they turned to the Joker, a man they didn't fully understand, and none of that would have happened without Batman in the first place. So is he a hero? or is he just making things worse? At the beginning of the movie, Harvey has his famous line, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. He doesn't offer up a third alternative. He never even gives a thought to the idea of just sitting back and letting the city stay corrupt. He believes in Batman for trying, even if he ultimately fails. And that's what Batman realizes at the end, that despite the horrors he's perhaps indirectly responsible for, as Alfred says, it was always going to get worse before it gets better. And he also says that's the point of Batman. He can be the outcast. He can make the choice no one else can make. The right choice. Even though Dent was corrupted by the Joker, Batman learned a lot from him before that. Dent was willing to be what he needed to be to get the job done. Earlier he allowed himself to be outed as Batman so the Joker would come out and Batman could catch him. So Batman echoes his line at the end, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And he does the same thing for his friend that he did earlier for him. He takes the fall, he lies for the greater good. Now if you agree with Alfred, then Batman can't be held responsible for the bad that comes out of the good things he does. That's that idea of escalation Gordon was talking about at the end of Begins. If you fight evil. It's going to fight back and harder so all Batman can do is be what he needs to be when he needs to be it
1: Vince has told me numerous
0: times that because of the way this movie was advertised he really expected it to be Joker the movie like 1989 was and was pleasantly surprised when that wasn't the case. The Joker steals the show in the sense that Heath Ledger's performance is so visceral and layered he had such energy in every frame of film he was in and he is the most memorable part of the movie despite being only one of many important elements. But he doesn't have more screen time than Batman like Jack Nicholson did and he's out of the movie completely for the last 15 minutes of the movie. If you want a great superhero movie that will hold up, you want a villain people love to watch and love to hate, but you don't want that villain to overshadow the hero and lessen the impact of his story. Some people have criticized this film for doing that very thing, but I don't see it. Batman has a very clear character arc, and it's masterfully crafted to center around what the Joker is doing. The Joker himself is not the central character. In fact, he's not even a fully developed character. He's designed to challenge Batman's philosophy to try to force him to break his one rule. Though extremely fascinating in this philosophy, the Joker isn't really a character so much as a force of nature. Like an unstoppable brush fire, you can't predict what he'll do. You don't know where he's going to go and what he's going to destroy next. He's certainly not a sympathetic villain in the classic sense because we can't relate to him. We know what he wants, but only because he tells us. He says the only sensible way to live in this world is without rules. He believes civilization is just a facade and that everyone in society is living a lie, or a bad joke as he calls it. We're all in denial because we're too comfortable. As long as we have security, it's easy to act like we understand human nature. The Joker tells Harvey in the hospital room, nobody panics as long as everything goes according to plan. And so he messes up those plans to show people what they really are at the core, that they're just animals pretending there's something more. But we don't know why the Joker thinks this way, we don't know his background, though he gives us two conflicting stories about how he got his scars, and I can only assume that neither of them is true. And we can never really be sure if he's ever telling the truth about anything, save his philosophy of anarchy. We can at least be sure he believes what he's selling about trying to show humanity what he thinks its true colors are, because he's fairly consistent about that. He never cares about money, proving that when he burns his half of the giant money pile toward the end. And he gets pretty frustrated when neither boat blows the other up in his social experience experiment where he's trying to prove that when the chips are down, people will always commit horrible atrocities to save themselves and that compassion is an illusion. That's when Batman says the Joker is just trying to show that deep down, everyone is just like him. So how did he get like this? It's not really a problem that we don't know because he's such an effective device. We get to use our imaginations and watch this bizarre, terrifying human being and wonder where he came from. Fans have often said the Joker should never have an origin because that's part of what makes him so interesting. You can never be completely sure if he's actually insane or not. Sure, we can say something must be wrong with someone mentally if they just go around killing people, but that's putting things in our civilized terms, arguing with a guy who thinks all of that is just made up to preserve order. The really scary thing to me is the possibility that one of the times the Joker is telling the truth could be when Gamble calls him crazy and he very pointedly says, I'm not. I'm not. We want to believe people are deep down good, and it's only after something terrible happens to them that they're corrupted, like we see here with Harvey Dent. Batman believes criminals are uncomplicated, that you can beat them as soon as you figure out what they're after. But what if nothing happened to the Joker in his past? Nothing at all? What if he just woke up one day, looked at the world, and said, this doesn't make any sense. All I see is hypocrisy and misplaced ideology. What if he was just a really smart guy who overthought everything, really analyzed things, trying to get to the truth? Oh God, what if the Joker is me? Nah, I'm just kidding. But that's a scary thought. Isn't it that the Joker might be perfectly sane and is capable of everything he does anyway? A lot of the terror that comes from this reimagining of the Joker comes out of what we can't see. Parents complain that there was too much gratuitous violence, but I completely disagree with that. I don't think the movie is overly violent, especially compared to most other recent PG-13 films, but rather that what violence there is is intensified by the theme surrounding it and how it's shot. There's no blood in The Dark Knight when the Joker does his magic pencil trick, all we see is the Joker slam his hand down and the thug go out of frame. That's it. The Joker talks a lot about what it's like to kill someone with a knife, how he uses knives instead of guns so he can savor all the little emotions, but we never sit down with him while he actually does that. This movie is absolutely not suitable for all ages, I'm not saying that. I would have been horrified by some of the ideas presented in this movie when I was 7 or 8, by the implied violence, but not necessarily by very much that were actually shown. Every time something really horrible happens, the camera cuts. We don't actually see the Joker kill Gamble, nor do we see the tryouts when the Joker makes Gamble's men fight to the death for the right to work for him. When I first saw the trailers, I was worried this would be an extremely gruesome, humorless Joker. And I think for being a terrorist, and for all the mutilation we know he does but we never see, he's presented as tastefully as possible, and he's surprisingly entertaining in that somewhat uncomfortable, I probably shouldn't be laughing at this kind of way. We know he impaled a man's head through a pencil, but the way Ledger delivers that scene, I can't can't help it, it's really funny. And yet, fully in character. Ledger found a way to make this manipulative anarchist with the most depressing message ever extremely entertaining. For my money, though he's definitely a reinvention of the character, it's an absolutely valid one. After decades of Batman stories, I'm glad we're not just constantly retreading what was already done with these characters and finding ways to update them for modern audiences. These characters have always evolved and grown over the years, and it's refreshing to me to see that that's still happening as long as compelling stories come out it. By the way, I think my favorite bit with the Joker is when he keeps hitting the button on the detonator trying to get the rest of the hospital to fall down. That's good filmmaking. Somehow this movie got me to laugh at a man trying to blow up a hospital. I'm a sucker for the villain who's a mirror for the hero, and this movie nails that. If Batman Begins is about finding a way to use fear to inspire people, to show them they can turn a positive into a negative, The Dark Knight is about a monster who uses fear to show people the opposite, that there is only the negative and everything else is an illusion. When I reviewed the animated movie Batman Under the Red Hood, I said that Jason Todd had become a perversion of Batman, a twisted mix of Batman and the Joker. Here, the Joker himself is the perversion of Batman. He was inspired by Batman to put on a costume and spread his message, too. Like Batman, he goes completely outside of society and tries to change things. Though their philosophies are different, Joker seems to have some respect for Batman because he thinks outside the box. He's a nonconformist, just like the Joker. But the problem for the Joker is that Batman is changing things, and having inspired Harvey Dent, he's leading Gotham into more of an orderly place, and Joker hates order. So he tries to corrupt Batman, showing him that he's really no different from anyone else, and that he, too, can be pushed to break his moral code, to go against his own rules at the end, when he hasn't managed to force Batman to kill him or anyone else, he says, this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. And he says they're destined to do this forever. I love that scene, not just because of the giddy Batman fan inside me that says, yay, that's how it's supposed to be, but also because these two are truly opposites. They almost literally repel each other. One can't kill the other. It's obvious why Batman won't kill him, because he can't kill anyone if he's to prove the Joker wrong. And the Joker says he won't kill Batman, quote, because you're just too much fun and I think it's because he's too fascinated by Batman. In the comics, the Joker likes the challenge that Batman brings, but the challenge there is in trying to make Batman insane, to make him like the Joker. The same is true here, except it's less about making Batman insane, though I guess that's pretty much what he did to Harvey, and more about trying to fit him into his philosophy. If he can corrupt Batman, the incorruptible, then he knows he's right. Remember that the Joker winning this argument is more important to him than anything. After all, he tried to get Batman to hit him in the street on the Batpod. He just wants Batman to kill someone, even if it's
1: him. The Joker says he's not a
0: planner or a schemer, and of course he clearly is. He has a pretty elaborate trap set up to get Harvey and Rachel and put Batman in a situation where he can only save one of them, the sadistic choice. And you gotta wonder how he can be sure anyone will be where he needs them to be when he sets these plans up. How did he know Batman would be at the police station to interrogate him, for instance, and yet he doesn't seem to have everything planned out to the very end? Like I said earlier, there are a number of places where he seems perfectly happy to die to prove his point, like when Two Faces flips a coin to decide whether he should live or die. Joker says, now we're talking. He wants chaos, and he says, that's fair. Random chance should decide his fate. He let Harvey hold that gun to his head. He couldn't possibly have known if he was going to make it out of that room alive, so who knows if he was already planning the scenario with the two boats. But while I have a hard time buying he could make sure his plan with Rachel and Dent hooked up to the oil drums would go off without a hitch, I'm actually okay with this one because of what Joker says to Batman at the end. Did you really think I would risk losing the battle for Gotham's soul in a fist fight with you? You need an ace in the hole and mine's Harvey. It wouldn't have mattered if he died in the hospital room or not. Getting Harvey to try to get him at all gave him the little push, Joker explains to Batman. I took Gotham's White Knight, and I brought him down to Arlo. I don't think the Joker had any idea, of course, that Dent's face would get scarred, or even half of the other things that happened due to his plans. I'm not even sure he knew if he'd survived the bank heist at the beginning. One of his men could easily have shot him, and he put himself in the exact situation they were in, just to see if they would do what he thought they would. I kind of see the Joker in this as the host of a really demented reality TV show where he socially experiments on people and tries to push them to their limits to see how they'll react and what kind of drama unfolds, except instead of making them go on little sleep and having lots of alcohol around, he gives them twisted impossible choices and murders them instead of voting them off the show. Obviously, I don't think the movie is actually a commentary on reality TV, I just think it's kind of a fun way to look at it, but I do think it's interesting that he manages to get a lot of his schemes on television. Anyway, there is some truth to what he says about not being a a planner. What he's saying is that he's not interested in control like the other planners, like he says of Gordon and Dent and the mob. They're all trying to control their own little worlds, he says. He says he just does things. He's like a dog chasing cars. So I think a lot of his schemes he really does just throw together in the heat of the moment. Multiple examples to prove his philosophy, rather than one giant scheme. For example, he didn't know Reese would come on television and try to tell the world who Batman was. He didn't even know who Reese was at that point, as far as I know. To refresh your memory, this is the accountant who works at Wayne Enterprises and figures out Bruce's Batman because of blueprints he finds of the Tumblr, which was developed at that company, but very quickly he devises a plot to blow up a hospital if Reese isn't killed within an hour, and that gives him just enough time to go give Harvey that little push. Is this all too convenient, or is the Joker simply smart enough to see opportunities others might miss? Is it too coincidental that Reese just happens to go on TV right when the Joker really wants to break into a hospital to see Harvey Dent? Maybe. I'm not entirely sure why he's kept quiet until now, given that we found out pretty early in the movie that he has this information, and Joker's killed a number of people because Batman won't turn himself in. But I don't think it's too convenient that Joker thinks this up. Keep in mind, that's why he does this. By saying he'll blow up a hospital, he's able to cause a pain at Gotham General, and get a lot of the building cleared so it's easier for him to get to Harvey. I buy this one more than I buy everything that had come together for the plan with Rachel to work.
1: This is the one time I sat
0: in the theater watching a superhero movie and didn't say, oh great, the villain's stealing the girlfriend again. I wonder where this is going. It's really unusual that the love interest isn't used to lure the hero anywhere. The Joker is actually with Batman when he reveals this to him. She's also not used entirely just because she's Batman's love interest, either. Joker finds this interesting, and he likes that it makes the personal stakes a lot higher for Batman, but Rachel is also, of course, Harvey Dent's girlfriend. Then again, there are a lot of unusual things about the love interest interest in this movie. First of all, she's the same love interest from the first movie, the first time that's ever been done with Batman in the cinema. He had a different girlfriend every movie in the original franchise. Secondly, she's not just there for the ladies in the audience or to give Bruce the added headache of having to keep his identity secret, since she already knows about that from the first movie. And she's not just here to be kidnapped. Okay, she's kind of here to be kidnapped. Her death plays a huge role in the tragic theme of the movie, which is that heroes can never be truly happy. She told Bruce at the end of Batman Begins that when the world no longer needed Batman, they could be together. Now, I resisted using that idea as a major thrust for this movie because I didn't want a love Triangle to get in the way of the larger issues, with Batman's attempt at making Gotham a place that doesn't need him. Instead, it plays perfectly into that idea by creating a character in Harvey Dent who can actually take over for Batman. You get this idea in the comics some the Batman knows from the beginning that his cause will never truly be finished. He sometimes seems almost as crazy as the psychotic villains he fights because he's obsessed with trying to obtain something he can never have, a world without crime. But the Nolans have devised a believable scenario where Dent may be creating a world where Batman really isn't needed anymore. That's why this world, visually, seems so much brighter than the world of Batman Begins. And so it makes sense that this would come up. Bruce has every right to ask Rachel this. The time is coming where the world won't need Batman. But she doesn't know if she can wait for Bruce because she's fallen in love with the hero that is making Gotham a place that doesn't need Batman. The man Bruce later tells Alfred after Rachel has died is Gotham's true hero. Bruce calls him a hero with a face. And so this is actually an extraordinarily well-crafted love triangle. It isn't just Bruce versus some random guy, and it's not just there for forced drama. It has everything to do with the main themes of the movie and makes it personal for everyone involved. I actually think the love triangle helps a lot in keeping the big, heavy social and political and philosophical ideas from keeping these characters seeming real and relegating them to archetypes. And this is coming from a guy who usually hates love triangles. And so, unbeknownst to Bruce, Rachel chooses to marry Harvey Dent, and I can't blame her. Though he's jealous of Harvey's relationship with Rachel, he says when he first meets Harvey and sees how committed he is to true justice, quoting his campaign slogan, I believe in Harvey Dent. He throws him a fundraiser and decides he might soon quit being Batman because he believes so completely in Harvey Dent. When Rachel dies and Bruce still thinks she was going to wait for him, he tells Alfred Dent can never know. He wants to protect his friend who's in terrible shape in the hospital and doesn't need any more pain. Very rarely do you get a love triangle like this, where the two people vying for the same girl or guy care so much about each other's feelings, having such respect for how the other person feels, even though they hope to get what they want. And so Alfred, having read Rachel's note, revealing to Bruce that she wants to marry Harvey, decides not to show the letter to Bruce to protect him with all the pain he's going through, just as Bruce thinks he's protecting Harvey. Yes, this movie has a lot of really heavy themes, but I think these characters are very real, and I find myself feeling for both men when they lose the woman they love. Briefly on Rachel herself, I think Maggie Gyllenhaal plays her very well, and I probably would have liked her more in the role had she gotten it in the first place, but I think she looks a few years older than Katie Holmes, and that distracted me when I first saw the film. I had to remind myself she was supposed to be the same character. She does seem a little more sarcastic than the character from the first film, but I think she's overall likeable. I'm just in the minority in that I actually liked Katie Holmes and Begins and really missed her here. Some folks have complained that there is so much going on in this movie, Batman gets lost in the plot. I felt that way the first couple times I saw it, too, and I think that's partially because of my expectations. Batman Begins was a character study of who Bruce Wayne is and who he's developing Batman to be. It's also interesting that that film had Batman in the title, and this one doesn't. Sure, the Dark Knight is a descriptor of Batman, but he's not the film's only protagonist, as he was in Batman Begins. It's about the events that lead to Batman becoming the Dark Knight, the symbol that can be whatever Gotham needs him to be. And by the way, I'm not going to say that I like one film over the other because they're two very different things and I think they both are very effective at what they're doing. Batman has a clear story arc here. He tells Alfred early on, Batman has no limits, and he spends the film learning what those limits are. In the first film, he becomes a symbol, and in this film, he learns what he can do with that, how to be Batman and Bruce Wayne, a man with human limitations. We may not see him spelling out his feelings as often as we did in begins, but that's because A there are other character arcs the movie has to focus on and B. The Joker doesn't give him time to feel, like after Rachel dies. There's one very tender scene between Bruce and Alfred, where Bruce is looking out the window, defeated, hating himself for setting Gotham down a path that led to Rachel's death and dense mutilation. And shortly after that, he's forced to put that all aside and deal with Joker's threat to blow up a hospital. I think this scene tells us everything we need to know as it parallels the scene in Batman Begins, where Alfred comes to offer Bruce supper just after his parents had been murdered. This scene happens the same way. Alfred enters the room, says, I thought I'd prepare a little supper, and Bruce ignores him. He says, very well, and then Bruce stops him, and says that it's all his fault. Exactly the same in both movies, the first about his parents' deaths, and here about Rachel and Dent. In begins, Alfred tells Bruce it isn't his fault. Here, Bruce tells him, I was meant to inspire good, not madness, and Alfred says, you have inspired good, but he also tells him that this was inevitable. Just after his parents' deaths, Alfred says there was nothing he could do. He tried to save Rachel, but he failed. Bruce feels as responsible as he did when his parents died, and that led him to become Batman. This new failure leads him to take Alfred's advice at the end and endure. Let Batman be the outcast. I don't think Bruce's characterization is lost in the events in the movie, I just think they're very intertwined. Bruce makes the choices he makes because of how he feels about what he perceives as his failures, even if the film doesn't spend a lot of time
1: showing him brooding about it.
0: This being a tragedy, it's a little more complicated than simply calling this a triad of three protagonists. Batman and Gordon have their own arcs and so does dent, but by the end, obviously, he's no longer a protagonist because he's switched to a second antagonist. But he's now one of my favorite movie villains because he's so much more layered than just simply being the bad guy. We watch him go from the best hope of Gotham City to being completely corrupted. Not that he compromises his principles, but that he gives up on them, resorting to murder to get revenge on those responsible for killing Rachel, rather than trusting the judicial system he's fought so hard for. This transformation goes against our expectations. You wouldn't expect the movie-length story to be long enough to do this effectively, but I think it works quite well. A far cry from the thrown-together, Venom origin and death at the end of Spider-Man 3. Yes, it's a half hour longer than your average superhero movie, and some people have called Batman's Catching the Joker a false ending, but the kidnapping of Gordon's family is set up before that, and while I might have expected it to end a few minutes earlier, the Joker is still very present in those last 15 minutes he's not there in what he does to Harvey and ultimately, this being his trump card, it feels necessary and deliberate to me. On first viewing, purely as a Batman fan, I kind of cried foul on Dent's death for a couple reasons. The first was that it seems like if there are two supervillains in a movie, almost always one must die and one must stay alive. But like the Joker, 2 Faces reinvented too. Rather than having a second personality that manifests itself, the two signs represent the goodness Harvey used to believe in and the evil the Joker has brought out in him. If you wanted to stretch, you could even say they represent Batman and the Joker. Now that Rachel has died and half his face has been blown off, his two-sided coin has been scratched, the coin he used to used to remind himself that the choice was always his, he's had a psychotic break, and he's decided that he was wrong. No matter what you do, you can't force the world to be fair. So he goes with the next best thing, what the Joker calls chaos, random chance. Everyone has the same chance, no matter who they are. So now when he flips his coin, he really is letting his coin make the decisions for him. He's turned into a horrible parody of himself, the way the Joker sees it, his true self, with all the BS social constructions, nobility, honor, fairness, honesty burned away. For the sake of this story, the whole point of Harvey Dent is tragedy, tearing a good man down and seeing how our other protagonists deal with that at the end. Two-Face isn't the real Harvey Dent. In a way, he is a different personality, though not the way he is in the comics. There's not a Harvey and a Two-Face personality, but simply a new, oversimplified version of Harvey who's taken his place now and has replaced choice with chance. Or at least that's how I see it. Could he have survived and been a great villain for another movie? Very possibly, but the ending of this film would have been very different, and Batman's character arc would have also been very different. To learn what Batman really has to be, and to learn how chained to that persona Bruce Wayne is now, and the reason Rachel could never have been with him, Harvey had to die. And to personally answer a question I posed at the beginning, is Batman wrong for bearing the truth? I actually condone this. Not because I think the ends justify the means, but because I think Harvey went insane and that at the end, he's not completely responsible for his actions. Now you might interpret this differently, but I think the real Harvey died when Rachel died, and Two-Face was born out of the ashes. The Joker didn't reveal the real Harvey, he created a monster with what was left over.
1: I think it's really interesting
0: the order Two-Face chooses to punish the triad at the end. Pointing his gun at Gordon's son, Gordon who he holds responsible for Rachel's death because it was his corrupt cops who worked for the Joker, Batman tells him to point the gun at those truly responsible. Harvey says, fair enough, and he flips his coin on Batman. It comes down tails, so he shoots Batman, and then, interestingly, he points the gun at himself. The coin comes up heads. Convenient, sure, but the suspense of Harvey maybe shooting Gordon's son, which is a truly intense scene, would have been lost, obviously, if he shot himself in the head. Then, he points the gun back at Jimmy, instead of Gordon, because he thinks Gordon deserves not to die, but to lose the family member most important to him, as he feels he did. And then Batman leaps at him, takes him down several feet, and he's killed. So why this order? He tells Batman, you thought we could be decent men in an indecent time. He blames Batman for inspiring him in the first place now. He now believes the Joker was right, and that Batman was just fighting against the inevitable, and that led to Rachel's death. He's next because he allowed himself to be an idealist and to be, as he now sees it, corrupted by Batman. And finally, he blames Gordon for not standing up against corruption. Now he doesn't believe you can stand up against corruption, so this might seem like a contradiction, but logically, if Gordon had refused to use those men, Rachel would never have died. If Dent were in his right mind, he might blame Gordon first. He's the one out of all of them that actually did the most wrong, because he worked with men he knew weren't on the level. He aims his gun at Gordon's son so he'll feel what Harvey felt when Rachel died. The only reason he shoots Batman directly, of course, is because he doesn't know who is behind the mask and therefore who he cares the most about. And I really feel bad for Gordon, who makes compromises he has to make in working with bad cops, puts all his faith in Dent, is really partially to blame for what happens to Dent, and finds himself having to tell his son it's going to be okay when the man who he thought would save Gotham is about to shoot him. Gordon goes a long way in trying to stop the mob and take out the Joker, especially faking his own death to get the drop on the Joker, and we really understand why he's the best man for the job of commissioner, but also how impossible his job is. The Joker puts Batman in an impossible situation, but Gordon is already having to make impossible decisions at the beginning of the movie. As he says to Harvey early on, he wouldn't have any help if he didn't work with any cops that Dent hadn't investigated. The message here is there's no black and white. To really get any good done, Gordon has to get his hands dirty. Fundamentally, it's wrong. And yet, what would you have him do? It makes him extremely
1: relatable, I think.
0: There are two story points that I've racked my brain about and just simply don't understand. Having seen the movie a number of times and having talked to friends who don't get these scenes either, I think it's definitely a problem that what they're getting at isn't more straightforward. But if you figured out what I'm missing, please leave a comment. The Joker tells Batman that Killing is making a choice when he sets him up for the sadistic choice between Rachel and Harvey. But if he's trying to force Batman to make a choice, then why does he trick him by telling him Harvey and Rachel are at the opposite places from where they really are? Is he just being sadistic, or is there more to it than that? The only thing I can figure is that he's pretty sure he'll go after Rachel because of the way he, as Joker says, threw himself after her earlier in the movie. And somehow he knows Batman will get there before the police do, maybe because that location is closer. And so he chooses Rachel to die, because that's the one he's going after. But I'm really not sure, and that seems pretty convoluted. I don't think you can chalk it up to the Joker just being random, because regardless of how far ahead he plans, everything he does does seem to be with a purpose. The Special Crimes Unit has a nickname for Harvey. They call him Two-Face. Harvey hates this and sees it as a really derogatory thing. He mentions it to Gordon, and Gordon gets nervous and won't make eye contact with him, saying, I wouldn't know about that. When Harvey ironically gets half his face blown off, he brings it up to Gordon again, making Gordon say Harvey Two-Face. Forgetting how unbelievably convenient it is that he would look like that after getting that nickname, why do they call him that? He's not crooked. He's not a liar. Everyone seems to like him. His whole shtick is that he's an honorable man and stands up against corruption. How could he possibly earn a name like Harvey Two-Face? This seems like a pretty big plot point for No Explanation.
1: What am I missing?
0: The final thing I'd like to touch on is political allegory, as the film has sometimes been said to just be a defense of George W. Bush's actions in the war on terror, as Bruce Civilly notes in his book Billion Dollar Batman. I don't like to get into personal politics, but obviously there are some political ideas in this movie, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. Now, the argument is that Batman goes over the line a number of times in the movie, but justifiably so because he's trying to stop a terrorist, taking up for Bush's policies on wiretapping and torture, and that the Joker represents Bin Laden because the. Both terrorists. And I think these real-world events absolutely inform the film, but I don't think the movie is defending or condemning Bush specifically. First of all, saying that the Joker is bin Laden is a stretch, given that their motivations are so different. Bin Laden was a religious terrorist who thought the United States policies and ideals were immoral and sacrilegious. The Joker is an anarchist. Those are really different. But I would also say that you couldn't have this movie without 9-11. Fiction often looks to the real world to cast its villains. In the 1940s, the closest thing we had to super was Nazis. And now we have terrorists. And if you're going to fight a terrorist whose rules are different from yours, and who, as in the case of the Joker, may not have rules at all, you have to decide how far you're going to go to stop him. What this alleged allegory forgets is that Batman isn't the only protagonist, and he's not the only guy trying to stop the Joker. If Batman is supposed to be Bush, then who is Harvey Dent? Who is Jim Gordon? Batman is a vigilante who works sometimes with the law, but also outside the law. Those who think the movie is taking up for Bush must think that when when Batman takes the fall for Den at the end, he's taking all the hate the American government gave him for his policies, but that he has to endure that because it was the right thing to do. Interestingly, there are others on the other side who also think the movie is a Bush allegory but actually think it's anti-Bush because of this ending, that he's getting what he deserves. I guess it all depends on whether you see what Batman does at the end as a heroic sacrifice or penance for his sins. But again, I really don't subscribe to any of this. I think there's absolutely some political commentary going on in that Batman has to make the kinds of choices our leaders have had to make, and he would, but I think it does leave it up to us to decide whether he's right, as evidenced by the fact that different people making the argument that it's a Bush allegory have differences of opinion as to whose side it's on. Perhaps this whole argument really comes out of one scene, and this is the only scene in the theater where I thought, wow, this is a little on the nose politically. And that's when Lucius Fox says he'll tender his resignation if the machine Batman builds to use all the city's cell phones to map Gotham isn't destroyed. Wiretapping was a really big issue in 2008, and I don't think anyone missed that one. But still, it's not about one man, it's about the issue itself. Is it wrong to invade the privacy of an entire city if it catches a madman who's about to blow up two huge boats full of people? Yes, it's dealing with a real-world issue, but it's not necessarily commentating on one person. As much as he doesn't agree with it, even Lucius sees that as necessary in the moment. I really wonder if as many people would have made a big deal about the allegory had it not been for how that scene was handled, because it seems to me like unnecessary drama. Batman tells Lucius that only he can use it, after Lucius says it's too much power for one person, and tells him to put in his code when he's finished. What he doesn't say is that he's planning to use it only one time and he's built in a self-destruct so it can never be used again. And, of course, I doubt that anybody expected that that's what Bush would do. If Batman had just said that right then, rather than dramatically letting Lucius figure it out later, the excuse being the line Batman has over the self-destruct scene where he says sometimes people deserve to have their faith restored, this invading people's privacy is wrong message that kind of came out of nowhere to me in the theater might not have seemed so heavy-handed. Now This is a ridiculously long review, but how much philosophical and social ground there is to cover is a testament, I think, to how great this movie is. I completely understand the complaint that it's too heavy-handed, and perhaps it is. But I think it's a fine line to walk between being cerebral and being a marketable, thrilling entertainment. It's incredible to me that in the same movie that asks all these philosophical questions I've been discussing, there's also an 18-wheeler that's turned end over end at the end of a chase sequence. I've never seen that before, and even better, it was done practically. They actually dropped that trailer on the streets of downtown Chicago. I think it juggles the political elements and the human elements extremely well, keeping our protagonists real and likable while exploring real-world issues. And it's by no means a humorless film. There are plenty of moments of levity in a movie that could have easily been completely stolid. Heath Ledger's posthumous Oscar was absolutely deserved, and I'm in the camp that feels the movie was robbed of a Best Picture nod. Ledger's death was tragic, but an accident, and according to his family had nothing to do with playing such a disturbing role. I wish we could have seen him play that part again, and we lost one of our finest young actors. This was an incredibly difficult movie to make, and a stunt man was sadly killed while filming one of the chase sequences. But despite the real-life tragedies, some incredible people came together to make a truly memorable modern tragedy. It showed us things we didn't know this genre was capable of, and it made this reviewer think a little differently about how I view the world. Because the scariest thing about The Dark Knight is that the Joker has a point. People can get too comfortable and complacent. They're not ready to make the tough calls, and they don't think they'll ever have to. The most powerful thing about this movie is that it makes us wonder what we would do if we were in these situations. How far would you have to be pushed before you killed a man? What would your vote have been if you were on the ferry, trying to decide whether or not to blow up the other boat to save your own? If handed the detonator, what would you do? What do you believe in? And when faced with your own mortality, and with the fate of others in your hands, would you still believe in it? I give the Dark Knight a 4 out of 4.
1: Well, you can't ever dream and cut it to fit. But when I saw you and you would go together like a wink and a smile.